Well, this is the third week in our series, Experiencing God's Love, and I am so glad that we are doing this. This is one of my favorite topics in the world. Uh, We are talking about this incredible truth that the God who made you also loves you and wants you not just to know that he loves you, but to experience it each and every day, to have that be a part of your life, that you know what the love of God feels like. So we're talking about what that means and how that happens. And the passage we're looking at today is one of the best that I know of to talk about this topic. And it is so rich, we're just going to jump right into it. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. Luke is one of the four biographies of Jesus in the New Testament. And the story we're looking at today is a story that Jesus told that some people have said is the greatest short story ever written. It's 21 verses long, uh, less than 400 words in the original language, and in it, Jesus lays bare the heart of the human condition. It's incredible. Hundreds of books have been written about these 21 verses. Some of the finest works of art and literature have been inspired by it. Preachers will often spend a month, five, six weeks, unpacking all of the richness of these verses. Uh, Every time I've ever studied it, I've learned something new. Uh, It's a lifetime passage that you really got to go back to again and again and again. But I'm pretty sure I can do it justice in the next 40 minutes. So here we go. Uh, For a little bit of context for the story, we're going to read the first verse uh, of chapter 15 here. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Okay, how many of you remember your lunchroom in junior high? Some of you are like, not in my worst nightmares, you know? Uh, Even if it's painful, I I want you to think about who you sat with when you were in high school or or in junior high at lunch. My lunch table was amazing. Uh, It was always very stimulating, uh, very important conversation going on, debating the issues of the day like this. Who would win in a fight, Optimus Prime or a T-Rex, you know? Uh, We would would debate Kirk or Picard, the X-Men or the Jedi. Uh, There was always a a game of chess going on somewhere on the table, and there was this kid who was always working feverishly on his fantasy novel that he had been writing. It was a very elite table, as you can tell. Uh, You had to speak one of two languages, either Klingon or Elvish, you know. Uh, In Jesus' day, uh, the world was like a junior high cafeteria. Uh, You know the rules here. See if you can remember them. If you ate with the cool kids, you were... Cool kid, yeah. Uh, If you ate with the athletes, you were? If you ate with the nerds, you were? One of my friends. That's right. (laughs) Who you eat with tells people who you are. Same was true in Jesus' day. So let's see if you can still follow it. If you, in that day, if someone ate with rich people, they were? If someone ate with religious people, they were? Jesus ate with sinners, so he was a? I'm glad some of you hesitated on that. It's really not a good idea to call Jesus a sinner, especially in church. But you can see the problem, can't you? Jesus ate with sinners. And not your ordinary, you know, everybody makes mistakes kind of sinners. He ate with, oh, you're one of those people kind of sinners. Specifically, he ate with tax collectors. Now, these guys were crooks, and they cheated their fellow Jews out of money, and they did it uh, to give money to the pagan Roman Empire that had taken over Israel and was dominating God's people. So these guys weren't just thieves. They were traitors to their country and to their God. And so these were not good folks. And so the Pharisees, they're looking at this, and they're quite naturally saying, Jesus, don't you know who these people are? Don't you know what they do? And so Jesus responds 
uh, by telling a few stories. This is kind of how he responded to a lot of things. He tells a series of three stories, and all three stories follow the same pattern. First one is this, very simple story. It's a, a story of the lost sheep. Uh, simple story. Uh, situation. Guy's got a bunch of sheep. One of them goes missing. He wanders around the country looking for the lost sheep. He finds it, brings it back, and he throws a party to celebrate. Second story, same pattern. Story of the lost coin. Woman loses a coin somewhere in her house. So she upends all the furniture, dusts everywhere, sweeps everything until she finally finds the coin, and then she calls her friends over for a party to celebrate that she has found the lost coin. Same pattern in both the stories. Something is lost. They seek it out. They find it and they throw a party. The third story, the one we're looking at today, follows the exact same pattern. But here's the thing, it goes into a lot more detail, and there's kind of a twist at the end, so be watching for it. Uh, as we read the story, we're going to get a profound picture of God's love, God's patient love. Uh, in the first half, we're actually going to see God's patient love for the rebellious. Let, let's start reading in verse 11. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons, the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. Now, the original audience would have shaken their heads and said, oh, no, he did not just say that to his father. Because this was not done in that culture. Uh, there was a New Testament scholar, a guy named Kenneth Bailey. And Bailey grew up in the Middle East. His parents were missionaries in Egypt. So uh, he grew up in that area. And he spent most of his adult life as a scholar working in Syria and Lebanon and Israel. And he, he traveled from uh, Morocco to India to Pakistan to all over the place. And what he would do is he would tell the stories of Jesus to people there. And the reason he did that is because he knew that the culture of the Mediterranean and the Middle East is far closer to the culture of Jesus' day than modern Western society is. If Jesus were here today, he would feel far more at home in Iraq than he would in Illinois. And so Bailey would tell these parables to people and try to get their reactions because he knew they are probably going to react in a way that sheds light on how the original audience would have heard this. And so when he would tell this story, at this detail, the conversation always went the same way. People would be shocked. They'd say, that could never happen in our town. And Bailey would say, well, has anybody ever done this? They'd say, never. It's impossible. People don't do that. He'd say, what, what would happen if someone actually asked to have their inheritance before their father had passed away? They would say, oh, their, their, their father would beat them. They'd say, why, why would they do that? Because by asking for the inheritance... They were wishing that their father was dead. You get that, right? Like even today, if, if your parents leave you something in their will, you don't get it until they die usually. In, in those days, the inheritance was an even bigger deal because it wasn't just cash. It, it was actually the land that your family lived on. Not just your immediate family, but your extended family lived on it. And so the patriarch who owned the land, they, they didn't just uh, you know, have the deed. They actually were in charge of the whole family business that was going on there. They were in charge of what people did. And so to ask for the inheritance was basically to say, Dad, uh, I'm tired of you being the one to care for our family. I'm tired of you being the one in charge. Uh, I'm tired of waiting for my time for you to die, for me to get my chance to do this. So step aside, old man. And this really, this is the story of humanity, isn't it? So what we say to God, you know, God, I'm tired of you being in charge. I just want to run my own life. Most people, they don't necessarily think about it that overtly, that directly, but it's kind of what we're saying, isn't it? Most people, they feel like they're just kind of ignoring God, you know? They think, you know, if I, you know, 
People talk about getting serious about religion, about your relationship with God. And, you know, it's just not for me. It's just not my thing. Like, I got my own deal going on, and that would kind of, you know, complicate things. And, hey, if that works for other people, totally cool. Like, I'm really glad that that works for you. Uh, you know, of course, I, if God wants to help me out when I'm in a tough situation, like, I'm totally cool if he wants to give me some money or, you know, help me with a, a job situation or whatever. But most of the time, eh, it's kind of a hassle to think about God. It's not, it's not like people are rebelling against God. They're just kind of indifferent to him. But what if you said those things to your parents? Or what if your kids said those things to you? Yeah, mom, mom and dad, like, I just, you know, not my thing. Like, I don't like hanging out with them. It just kind of complicates my life and what, what I've got going on. Like, if, if my siblings want to hang out with mom and dad, like, that's great, good for them. But for me, like, I, look, if my parents want to help out, send me some money sometime, help me in a pinch, like, that's cool. But most of the time, kind of a hassle. That would break your heart if your kids said that to you, if you said that to your parents. How, how does God feel when that happens? The God who loves us and made us to be a part of his family, to experience his love, we say, yeah, I might actually be better off without you in my life. What? Why don't you just give me my stuff and kind of move along? How does God react to this kind of thing? Look at the end of verse 12. So the father divided his property between them. Now, if the original audience would have shaken their heads at the younger son, they would have gasped at the father. No good father would have put up with this selfish, shameful request. If he was a merciful man, he might have, you know, just sent his son away with a reprimand. But more than likely, he would have punished him. He certainly wouldn't have given in. That would have been indulgent and irresponsible. But he does. And that's what God does for us, isn't it? We, we demand a life without him. And he says, you can have what you ask for. Why would he do that? Look at what the younger son does. Verse 13, not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. In our culture, we expect adult children to move out of their home. That's the normal, natural thing. We, we make jokes, we, we complain even about people who are still living with their parents as adults. But in that culture... And in most cultures prior to modern Western society, that would not have been a successful thing to send your, your kid off to their own life. You, you, it would have been a betrayal of the family. The, the idea was to stay on the family land, to care for it just as your ancestors had, to provide for your extended family, to make sure that the land was still there for future generations. It wasn't just a resource. It was a responsibility to, to receive that inheritance. When the property was divided, uh, the older son would have gotten a double portion. He would have uh, gotten two-thirds of the land, and the younger son would have gotten a single portion. He would have had one-third of the property. So what this means practically is that when the younger son set off, in order to turn all of that into cash, he would have had to sell a third of the family land. So think about how that would have affected the rest of the family who stayed behind. Think about how every single day they would see people going onto that land and they, their, their embarrassment and their anger at people building a new house on that property that used to be theirs. And every year when they would bring in the crop, they would have a third less wealth to support the family there. And on into generations, they had lost that land. Think about how it might have affected the wider community. That later in the story, we're going to hear how the father had hired servants. He had uh, people who worked on the land. These are people who did not have their own land. But this land was big enough that it could support people who needed work. You sell a third of that land, those people are out of a job. They, they got to go someplace else. 
The, the younger son's rebellion didn't just affect him. It affected all the people around him. So the son sells the land, moves out of town, and he wastes all the money on wild living. Now, we're not told in detail, you know, what, what is wild living involved, but you can imagine what that means. We're also not told what his motivation is, but you can probably imagine that too. Because here's the thing. Every single one of us has built-in desires, desires for joy, a craving for acceptance, a need for satisfaction, a longing for significance, desires that are so big, so strong, that, that we can search and search and search, and we never seem to find anything that fills them. Now, these are good desires. These are excellent desires because they are desires that were given to us by God. But here's the thing. God gave them to us so that he could be the one to meet them. There's nothing big enough to meet them. Uh, St. Augustine famously said, our hearts are restless until they find rest in God. And if we don't find rest in God, we go looking and searching for something, something to fill that void. It's how addictions get formed. That's how we become workaholics. It's the reason people bounce from relationship to relationship, looking for someone who's going to complete them. It's the reason we move from place to place, looking for someplace that's finally going to feel like home. And so the younger son goes off searching, something to fill those desires. And, and at first, the, the wild living, I'm sure it met the need, scratched the itch. It always does at first. But then read in verse 14. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. He hits rock bottom. He's used up all his cash, and so when a disaster comes through the, the society, he's vulnerable. He doesn't know what to do. He's got to work. He's got to eat, so uh, he goes and sells himself out to a, a farmer, and the farmer has him doing work that's not just unpleasant. It's humiliating. For the Jewish audience to be around pigs, which is an unclean animal, which would have been forbidden for them. It just, it's like the lowest of the lows. And for him to be saying, I don't just want to eat the pigs. I want to eat the food the pigs are eating. Not, they're eating better than I am. And this is about as bad as it can get. And that's the truth about sin. In the beginning, it promises everything, but in the end, it provides nothing. Things start off great, but eventually our drug of choice start, starts delivering less and less and demands more and more. The highs are less high, the lows are even lower, and eventually it's taken everything that we've got. And we're still restless. Verse 17. When he came to his senses, there's a key moment here. He came to his senses, he realized it wasn't working for him. Have you gotten to that place? Are you in that place now? When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out. I'll go back to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. The younger son here, he does what a lot of people do when they come to their senses. They say, look, I, I know, I know I've screwed up royally. Like, I messed this up. But maybe, maybe if I clean myself up, if I get my act together, God's going to show me a little pity if I just, you know, do the right things here. See, the, the younger son was not foolish enough to think that he'd just go home and everything would be exactly how it used to be, that, you know, his, his father would just be like, yeah, no big deal, just come back in. 
That he, he knows that his father is probably not going to forgive him, but he's hoping that at the very least he can kind of like work off his debt, you know? Like, I'll be a servant. I'm not, I'm not coming to be a son. I'm coming to be a, a servant. And, and even if I can't work off my debt, at the very minimum, I can, you know, work for my room and board, not be a burden to anybody. Even that, though, is a bit of a stretch, right? Because if he shows his face in town, he knows that he is risking his father's wrath, not to mention what the other people are going to do, people in his household, people in his community that see him. But he's desperate. He's desperate enough to, to grovel and to beg and to bargain. And that's what a lot of us do with God, don't we? Like we know we're not worthy and we, we feel it. I, I can't tell you how many people have told me, you know, I, it's been years since I've been in church. And I, I know if I walked into a church building, it would just fall in on me. Everybody seems to use that metaphor of like if the church is going to collapse. Has that ever happened anywhere? Um, people always say it though. And we think about going back to God and, and we imagine the look on his face and it's stern and it's angry. And we know we deserve it. And so we think, well, I'm going to bargain with God. God, I promise, I know I haven't done good, but I'm going to try my hardest. I'm going to get my act together. And at the very least, maybe eventually I can just, you know, you, you just won't be angry at me and I can kind of hang around the fringes. You know, like that's the best we got. So the younger son heads home. And he's rehearsing the speech in his mind. I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy. I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy. And as he crests the final hill and he turns the final corner onto a street, he sees his house. And to his surprise, his father is standing outside. And he thinks, what? Oh, no. Oh, no. What am I done? Like, this is a terrible idea. I shouldn't have come back. What was I thinking? This is awful. Oh, and then he realizes his father sees him. It's so far away that he can't see the look on his father's face. And he wonders, he's thinking, oh, this is, this is not good. Look at him. Oh, what, what is he doing? He, he's running. Why, why is he running? Why is he coming at me? And as the father gets close, he raises his arms and the son thinks, this is it. He braces himself for the blow and the beating. And the father wraps his arms around his son. And he pulls him into a tight embrace and he kisses him. And before long, his hair is soaked with tears the son is thinking, what is going on? Look at verse 20. I love this. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. I love this verse. It's such an amazing window into the heart of God. Look at what it says. It says the father saw him while he was still a long way off. You know what that means? It means he was watching. Like I, I can just imagine the servants every single day, probably for years, saying, why does he do that? Like every day he goes out to the edge of the property and he just stares for a while. Like, has he lost it? What's he looking for? But do you think about God that way? That when you come back to him, he's not reluctant to have you back. He's eager to have you back. He's been looking for you before you were looking for him. It says he was filled with compassion. Compassion. This is crazy to me because compassion is something you have for victims. You know, they're an orphan. A hurricane destroyed their home. Something outside of their control did something to them, and so you feel compassion for them. It wasn't their fault. But when someone screws up their life and they screw up the life of other people around them and they start getting what they deserve, you don't think, oh, yeah, I got compassion for them. But God has compassion for us when we've broken our lives with our own decisions, when we've screwed up our lives with our own sin, he doesn't say, well, I told you so. Didn't you see that coming? You're getting what you deserve. 
No, his heart breaks for us because he loves us, even if we did it to ourselves. And it says the father ran to his son. Can you imagine that? Okay, in, in that culture, men did not run, okay? Especially if you are a wealthy landowning patriarch. It was beneath your dignity to run someplace. Uh, running meant you had to pick up your robes and show your legs and uh, maybe your undergarments are showing. And, and, and you, running is what children did, not, not, not fathers. This would be like seeing someone walking down the road in their pajamas and you're like, oh my goodness, what is going on? What are they doing? It's so humiliating. But why did he do it? Because he was overcome with love for his child, for his son. There probably is a practical side to it, too, because the father knows if he is not the very first person to greet his son, someone else is going to see him first, and what are they going to do? They're going to spit in his face. They're going to slap him. They're going to run him out of town. How dare you show yourself here? So what the father does is he shames himself by running in order to make sure no one shames his son. This is incredible. This is what, this is what God does for us, you know? That God loves us so much. That before we even get there, we can't even drag our sorry butt all the way home. He's already running out to the road to grab us, to reach us. He's chasing us before we even arrive. And, and he shames himself. That's what Jesus did. When, when he chased us all the way to the cross, he took on our shame to take our shame away. That is the love of God for his children. The son tries to get his speech out. Verse 21, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father cuts him off before he can get to the bargain. The father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Some of you, you have the script running in your mind, the same one the younger son did. I have sinned. I'm not worthy. I have sinned. I'm not worthy. I have sinned. I'm not worthy. I want to tell you something about that script. It's true. You have sinned, and you aren't worthy. But here's something else about it. It's incomplete. Because here's the thing, there is nothing, no amount of sin, no amount of unworthiness that can prevent God from loving you. It, it cannot stop. The, the father doesn't dispute the son and say, oh, no, no, what, what you did, not, no big deal. You know, it wasn't, really, it wasn't really that bad. You know, like, stop, stop beating yourself up. Everybody makes mistakes. Well, the son, son was right. It, it was a terrible thing. It should have disqualified him from being a son. But here's the thing the son doesn't understand. His sin does not get the final word about him. His father does. And the same thing is true of us. Someone once summarized the Christian message this way. Cheer up. You're a lot worse off than you ever imagined. <laughs> but in Jesus, you're more loved than you ever dared hope. God doesn't care that you're not worthy. He, he knows that we can't make ourselves worthy on our own. But here's the thing. We don't bring our own robe to the feast. God gives us his. We don't claim our rights before God. God puts his ring of authority on our hand. We can't work for our supper, but God pays for the party. God doesn't love us because we're worthy. God's ma God makes us worthy by loving us. This is really important. God doesn't love us because we're worthy. 
God makes us worthy by loving us. See, this is the heart of God. He who welcomes you just as you are, not reluctantly, but with joy and with celebration. You've got to understand this because I know how you imagine God. You have told me that you, you know that, okay, God loves me, God loves me, but you imagine God as stoic and stern and strict. And you think, well, yeah, he might let me into the house, but I can't get mud on the carpet. I got to be careful not to spill on the sofa. Like he'll offer me a meal, but I better mind my manners while I'm eating it. But Jesus says, no, that is not my father. That is not the heart of God. This is the heart of God. This is what love actually looks like. His love is a running, hugging, kissing, drinking, eating, dancing, singing, laughing kind of love. It is a love that is so lavish, it looks foolish and irresponsible to the people who see it. Kill the fatted calf, what are you talking about? We saved that for a special occasion. That, that's enough meat to feed the entire village. How many people are you thinking of inviting to this party? And the father says, everybody, everybody. Because his love goes beyond just tolerating your presence. He, he delights in you. He enjoys you. He rejoices in you. God is not holding back. He's not holding out on you. He loves you. And no amount of rebellion in your past can overcome his patient love for you. Now, the story could end there. And if we were following the, the pattern of the first two stories that Jesus st told, it would have. There, there was something that was lost. It, it was sought out. They found it, and they threw a party. And they all lived happily ever after, right? Well, it turns out, if you stick around after the credits, there's another scene. Uh, Jesus goes on to tell the reaction of the older son to the younger son's party. And this is where Jesus' point comes uh, across in a whole new way. Here is where we see God's patient love for the resentful, for the resentful. So the older son, he's out working in the fields and he hears the sound of the party. And normally he would have known about parties that were gonna be thrown. So he asks a servant, what's going on? And a servant tells him, and this is his reaction, verse 28. The older son became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. The, the older brother is ticked. And so he does something that would have been totally disrespectful in that culture. He refuses to go into the party. He makes his father come out and get him. Now, if any of you have ever been at a family gathering where two family members had a public fight in front of each other, like in, everybody's watching, like you know how this goes. Hopefully you didn't experience that this week. But it's embarrassing for everybody involved. And so for the son to say, I think my father is such a fool that I'm going to make him come out and argue with me on the front lawn was incredibly disrespectful. The father pleads with him, he begs him to come in. But the son just lets him have it. This is what he says. He answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and I never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. You feel his anger. And frankly, he's got a point, doesn't he? This is not exactly fair. It starts out by saying, look, I've been a good son. Like he always did what he's been told. He, he was never disobedient. He always kept the rules. And that might be an exaggeration, but it's basically true. The father doesn't argue with him about it. He's been a model child in a lot of respects. But not only has he been a good son, he actually thinks the father's kind of been a bad father. Like seriously, that deadbeat gets a fattened calf. Hello, have you noticed your honor roll student right here? Where's my party? Like you're going to celebrate the guy who screwed up his life. And by the way, he shafted our family just because he manages to drag his sorry tail back home. But me, I get nothing. Yeah, that's great parenting, dad. 
He's resentful. His father has been holding out on him. He's like, look, I just want to take my friends out to pizza, and this guy gets a four-course meal. What is going on? Here's the really telling part. In his reaction, there's a word that gives away a lot. He says, all these years I have been slaving for you. You see, the son was obedient on the outside, and it looked like he had a good attitude about it. But on the inside, that, that kind of gives us a peek into how he actually felt about his relationship with his father. He, he didn't see it as a blessing. He saw it as a burden. He, he saw it as bondage. Think about this in a work context. You got an employee who just works really hard. They do a great job. They do everything you ask. They, they do it quickly. And so you pull them aside. You, you want to say thank you to them. And you, you actually ask them, you say, hey, wh- wh- why do you work as hard as you do? And say, honestly, um, I just do it because I need a paycheck and I hate this job. Like I just kind of grit my teeth and bear it and I force myself to do it. But seriously, uh, if I could get out of here, I could. This is like slavery. Like, oh, yikes, dude. What's, what's up, man? Like, you know people got to do things that they don't always like to do, but you hope that they'd say something like, you know what, I love what I do. I love the people I work with. I trust the people I work for. I believe in what this organization stands for, and that's why I work so hard. You're thankful that the work gets done, but it feels like slavery. Something's gone wrong. Even more if you talk in a family. Like, of course, the younger son says, yeah, I hated living with dad. That's why I ran away. But when the obedient son... Says it felt like slavery? What's happening here? Here's the interesting thing. Both of the sons, they saw their choices in the exact same way. Both the older and the younger son, they saw that their life was a decision between either slavery or rebellion. You can either either slave for dad or you can rebel against dad, but those are your options. They, They made opposite choices. They did different paths, but they both saw the decision the same way. And a lot of people, that's how they view God. They see those are your options, right? Like you you can be responsible. You can follow the rules, do all the things. And, 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 you know, you'll you'll feel good about yourself for that reason, but it's going to constrict you. It's going to stifle you. Like it's going to, you know, cramp your freedom. Or or you can go and get your freedom. You can can head out and you can discover yourself and see what the world has to offer. And it might lead you to some danger. It might be problematic sometimes, but, you know, it's better than slavery, right? Different people choose different paths. You know, it's either slavery, responsibility, or it's rebellion and freedom. But those are the two choices that you've got. But of course, that's not the way the father sees it. Look at verse 31. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. You see, for the father, the choice is not between being a rebel and being a slave. The choice is between being a rebel, a slave, or a son. The the choice is between whether or not you will come into the party you've been invited to. The, The father says to the older son, I am always with you, or you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. This is two really important pieces of the puzzle here. Everything I have is yours, he says. That is literally true for the older brother. So when the property was divided, the younger son sells his share. Everything that's left over, it belongs to the older brother. So the father is saying, wait, you felt like I was holding out on you? You you thought I was being stingy with you? Like, I've literally given you everything. You wanted a goat? 
I actually already gave you the goat. I gave you a whole flock of goats. I gave you the fatted calf too. It belongs to you. Like you, you've got the fields and the equipment and the house and the servants and the stores of food. Like it's all yours. What do you lack that I could have given you? Everything I have is yours. It says you are always with me. The, the older son, he's been going about his work, acting like he's being all loyal to the father, but he missed actually being with his father. He missed the most important thing. The father doesn't want mere mechanical obedience. Well, we checked the box. We did what we were told. The father wants a relationship. He wants his children to actually be with him. And it's clear the older brother did not spend a lot of time with his dad. Because think about it this way. How could he spend all those years in a house with a guy who would run down the street and hug his other son and weep and kiss and throw a party and do all of that and the older brother not pick up any on that? To say, what, what, whoa, where'd that come from? I'm shocked that you behave that way. Because I'm pretty sure that kind of grace and tenderness and generosity had to have come out in other ways. And if he was around his father, he would have already known this is the kind of man who is raising me. He, he never was with his father, so he never picked up his father's heart. He had been working so hard for the father that he never spent time with him. In some ways, the older son was just as distant from the father as the younger son was, even though he never left the, the home. There's a, a pastor named Tim Keller. He points out that there are two ways to rebel against God. The first is you, you can reject God and you can break all of God's rules just like the younger son did. Or on the other hand, you can actually keep all of God's rules, but do so in a self-righteous way. Look at how good I am. God owes me now. God deserves, I deserve something from God because I've done so much from him. You feel entitled and you, you get resentful when things aren't going well in life. I've done everything right. Why, why did I still get sick? Why am I still single? Why am I stuck in this dead-end job? Why isn't God holding up his end of the deal? I do stuff for him. He does stuff for me. And ironically, your goodness, your obedience becomes the thing that you throw in God's face. It's the barrier between you and God. And you get judgmental. You look down on the younger brothers like, I'm better than them. Even when they repent, you think, man, it's kind of messy. Like, couldn't they get things together before showing up? Like, having broken people in your life and they're still in process? Like, this is, this is hard. Could, could we just, you know, have some people who know what they're doing? And part of the reason is you don't recognize that you're a broken, messy person who's actually still in process too. There are two ways to evade God's grace. You can break all the rules or you can keep all the rules. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus talked about obedience all the time. It's one of the ways we experience God's love, by, by obeying his commands. But here's the thing. you got to understand this. We do not obey in order to earn God's love. We do not obey in order to earn God's love. We obey in response to God's love. The order matters. We, we, we don't obey. We don't do the right thing to secure our identity with God. We do the right thing as a result of our identity with God, as God's child. Here's what God invites us into. The, the same thing the father invited both of his sons into. He's saying, come and be with me. Come, come and join me in the celebration. Come and experience my joy. Actually be with me and let me rub off on you. Whether you've broken the rules or you've kept all the rules, come and simply enjoy my love and let that transform you. You, you don't have to earn that. You just come and be with me. Because here's the radical thing that Jesus is saying. The world is not divided between good people and bad people. 
is divided between the people who will come to the party and the people who won't. The people who are humble enough to say, I'm going to take a free gift that I don't have to earn. And the people say, no, I want to define myself, either by rebelling or keeping all the rules or whatever. I'm going to define myself. This is where the story ends. The father is standing outside. He's talking to his son, and we do not hear how the older son responds. And I think that cliffhanger is intentional. Because Jesus, he's pushing the, the, the question back onto his audience. He's saying, how would you respond? How, how will you respond to the invitation into the party? That's the thing I want to consider now. I, I don't know if you feel more like the older brother or the younger brother. But here's the thing. To each of you, God says, come just as you are. You are welcome at the celebration. And here's how I know that you will be welcome at God's celebration. Because I know what Jesus did just a few pages later. You turn the pages, and in just a few chapters, Jesus is going to the cross. And as he hangs on the cross, what he's doing is he's taking the mess that we made from our rebellion and taking it on himself. He, he, he paid the debt that we accrued from, from our squandering of his, our father's wealth. He, he's taking the punishment that we have earned, that we deserve. He's suffering the death that we should have died for us. And when Jesus rose again, what he did was he brought joy and life and he offers an invitation. He says, it is free. The doors are open. You can come into the party. You are not too far gone. You do not have to earn this. You do not have to be good enough. All you have to do is trust me. And here's what I'll tell you. When you turn towards God, this is how he will respond to you. Just like he did to the younger son. He will come running out to you. He will embrace you and kiss you and hug you and put his robe and his ring on you. He will welcome you in with open arms. He's not reluctant. Do you need to come home? Is today the day to experience that welcome from God? Some of you here are saying, yeah, I need to do that. So here's what I'm going to do. In just a moment, we're going to sing our final song. We're going to take our gifts and our offerings. But before that, I'm actually going to pray a prayer. It's a simple prayer. There's nothing magical about it. But it's just some words to express a desire to come home to God, to say, yeah, I'm sorry for the things that I've done. And I know I'm not worthy, but I want your gift of becoming your child, your son, your daughter, because of what Jesus did. So if that's you, whether you're an older brother or a younger brother, and you want to surrender, I'd encourage you, pray with me as I pray. Let's do that now. God, you love us so much, and we are so thankful that you welcome us with open arms. So God, I, I wanna say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for, for all the things I've done, the way that I have dishonored you and disrespected you, have run away from you, the, the way I have pursued other things instead of you, the, the way I have hurt others with my selfishness and, and done irresponsible things. I'm sorry for my self-righteousness and the ways that I think I'm better than other people. God, forgive me. God, I, I want to say thank you. Thank you for loving me even before I loved you. Thank you for looking for me even before I looked for you. Thank you for sending Jesus to die in my place and to be raised to offer me life so that I could be welcomed back into your family. God, thank you for that. And God, I want to say, please, please forgive me 
Please uh, clean me up. Please welcome me back in. Please uh, let me be your son. Let me be your daughter. God, I want to be a part of the family. I want to be with you. Please welcome me back in. God, we want to praise you. Because we know that anybody who has prayed that prayer, anybody who has uh, said that to you, that you embrace them with open arms, that you welcome them just where they are. God, we pray that you would be with each person who's come home to you today, that they would experience that joy of, of heaven celebrating that one who is lost is now found, that one who is dead is now alive again. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.